As we mentioned in our last lesson, the most testing stage in Jacob's educational process with the Lord came during his stay in Laban's house in Haran, his future father-in-law. Those 20 years that he would spend there, plus the one month that he stayed as a guest in Laban's home, they present us with an excellent illustration of the truth which is found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Those verses I know you know because they are, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also what? Reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of his flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That biblical principle is what we could also call, as you see I have it up here, the divine law of retribution. Or you could call it the law of sowing and reaping. In Job, the book of Job, in chapter 4, verse 8, the idea, the same idea behind this principle of sowing and, and reaping is stated like this. They that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. And Jacob's life vividly, vividly demonstrates this very principle in effect. Actually, if you think about it, from cover to cover in the Bible, the law of divine retribution can be seen at work. Pharaoh of Egypt, I'm just going to give you a few examples, but like I said, from cover to cover you can see this law in effect. Pharaoh of Egypt, remember him? He issued a wicked command that every Hebrew son was to be drowned. Exodus 1.22. And did he reap the wickedness that he had sown? Yes, he did. Because not only did he lose his own son, but he himself drowned. Then there, and here's a picture of him going into the water to drown. Then there was a strange man in the Old Testament named Adonai Bezek. How many of you remember him? <laughs> well, he was the one who had the thumbs and toes of 70 men, 70 enemies of his enemies cut off. Isn't that awful? Their thumbs and their toes cut off. But he too reaped the consequence of his own cruelty when he was later taken as a prisoner. And what do you think they did to him? Cut off his thumbs and his toes. And he even made this admission to his captors. He said, as I have done, so God hath required of me. And then I'm sure somebody in this room has thought of this fellow, Haman, the wicked enemy of the Jews during the time of Esther. He had prepared a gallows upon which he desperately wanted to hang Mordecai. But instead, as God would have it, what happened? Right, Haman himself was hanged on the gallows he had made for Mordecai. And the examples continue you know, throughout the Bible. And they continue throughout our own lives. How many of us know something we are reaping because of earlier sowing? Some, sometimes we see it in our own children, don't we? The things we have sown and they come out in them and we say, uh-oh, I'm reaping something here. It's usually always the bad things that you see the most. 
Anyway, so it's things, it, uh, the examples continue throughout the scripture, throughout our own lives, and throughout the lives of those around us. However, I really don't think that this principle is demonstrated in any one individual as much as we find it in Jacob. Just think of some of the ways, these aren't even extensive, but some of the ways in which Jacob reaped what he had sown. He had driven a very hard bargain, remember, with his brother Esau when he swapped Esau, his birthright, for just a bowl of red bean pottage. And now we will see his uncle Laban would push a very hard bargain with him. Actually, one that would go on for 20 years. Jacob had deceived to get his father's blessing and uh, to have his older brother serve him. But he would find himself serving, serving Laban, his uncle, again, for 20 long years. Jacob had refused to wait on God's time, and so he was going to be made to wait instead on whose time? Laban's time. I mean, who'd you rather wait on, God's time or Laban's time? Kind of an easy choice there. Jacob had deceived his father, and he was going to be beaten at his own game by his father-in-law. Jacob had come as the younger son in a deceptive plot with his mother to take the rights of the elder son. And in return for such sowing, Jacob was deceived by an elder daughter in a deceptive plot of her father's making to take the right of the younger daughter. Even in his old age, we're going to find that Jacob was still reaping that which he had sown as a younger man. And some of us who maybe, you know, in our younger years might have turned from the Lord or rejected the Lord or have not, not have been at all interested in the Lord, you know, didn't bother with going to church or in a Bible study or studying God's Word or whatever, we may be reaping this in our older years because of our children. Again, we go to our children. They may not be interested in church at all. I know some of you might have that, that uh, situation. You know, some of us may have um, sown bad habits. Smoking, drinking, whatever. You know, wildlife as a, young, a younger person. And in your old age, you can reap from that too, can't you? You can think of all kinds of ways that we can reap what we've sown. But uh, he had, he was still, even as an old man, Jacob was reaping what he had sown when he was younger. He had deceived his father, remember, with the skins of the kids of, the, of a goat. And little did he know that he would pay the piper when many years later he himself was deceived by his sons with the blood from what? A kid of the goats. Jacob had uh, deceived Jacob regarding his favorite son, Esau. And so he, Jacob, was deceived by his sons regarding his favorite son, Joseph. I mean, he really paid the piper, didn't he? You don't think God was paying attention to what was going on? So Jacob, Jacob really did reap what he sowed in many, many other ways. These are just a few. He def, and he definitely met his match when he met Uncle Laban. Not only did he meet his match, but he also met his means of discipline. God was using Uncle Laban in Jacob's life. And not only did he meet his match and he met his means of discipline, but he met his own medicine. 
So God is not mocked. He does not wink at sin. He does not look the other way when sin is sown. He sees everything, absolutely everything that we do and don't ever forget it. Even the things that we do in our secret closets, he sees it all. The good news for those of us who have accepted God's free gift of salvation, which is available through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news is um, that God's chastisement for our disobedience is sent in love and not in anger. Here's another man, King David, who reaped what he sowed. When God puts into effect the law of divine retribution in our lives, speaking of born-again believers, it's not done in angry judgment, but in loving chastisement in order to get our attention, you know, to direct our hearts. He uses this sowing-reaping principle in the lives of believers to... um, to, to direct our hearts so that we have our eyes opened to see the faults of our own ways or our own past ways and, and the deceitfulness of our hearts. He wants us, in other words, to judge ourselves. You know, when you find that you're reaping something you have sown, you need to examine yourself. You need to judge yourself. And when you do that honestly, then what do you need to do? You need to, of course, confess that earlier error fault, sin, and you need to uh, make all the necessary changes and corrections in your life. You know, even if you've, if you made that mistake with your children and they weren't raised in a godly Christian home, you need to confess that and go to them. The best thing you could ever do is say, look, you know, I am now a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and I have made, you know, I, well, I didn't know any better and I'm sorry and, and uh, go from there, start from there, right? Tell, start telling them about Jesus now. It isn't too late. Anyway, um, so he uses, in the lives of believers, he uses the truth of Galatians 6, 7 and 8 to bring us, you know, to himself so that, more to himself, so that we will crucify our flesh. So that we increasingly, instead of sowing to the flesh, sowing to the flesh, we will do what? Sow to the spirit. You know, do righteous, because the principle also works when you sow good things, when you sow righteousness. You know, if you have raised your children in a godly fashion and they have really, really seen that you are sold out for the Lord, you will reap the benefits from that sooner or later. I believe that. And other ways, too. You know, if you've taken good care of your body, hopefully. I mean, there are exceptions always, of course, but um, but you know what I mean. If you sow to the Spirit... The scripture says that we will reap of the spirit and we will. The good news is that we will become more and more like Jesus Christ. So it may be it may be that some of you here have been perplexed over some circumstance in your life. Maybe there has been some long continuing situation of unhappiness, which you really don't understand. It might be. That, just like Jacob, these there are some areas in your life, you know, some unchristlike traits or attitudes which the Lord is seeking to remove. I mean, have you ever asked yourself if it may be that the Lord is purposely allowing some difficulty in your life, some what you might think is some injustice, you know, some seeming injustice or some irritant Maybe a thorn in the flesh of some kind. Maybe he is using that in order to correct something about yourself. 
who should we always look to first when we have a problem? You know, not, oh, it's that person. They're, they're my irritant. They're the problem. First thing we need to do is judge ourselves and see if there's something that maybe is grieving the Lord, grieving the Holy Spirit about us. Have you asked yourself if God is causing you perhaps to reap something which you yourself have sown at some earlier point in your life so that you will judge yourself and then, you know, confess that and make all the appropriate changes and, and so that you are forced like Jacob, so that you are forced to cling to him and realize that he truly is your greatest delight. Jacob would learn these truths eventually. It would take him a long time, but he would learn them. And many of them he would learn during his stay in Uncle Laban's house as he was enrolled in God's school of hard knocks with cunning, crafty, resourceful, self-centered, greedy Laban as his schoolmaster. How would you like him as your schoolmaster? He, w- he was quite a character. Well, up through the events that we discussed in last week's lesson, which had to do with uh, Jacob's arrival at Haran and his ready acceptance by Laban, it would appear, you know, up, up until that lesson, lesson number 66, it would appear like everything in Jacob's life was, you know, kind of smooth sailing. Esau had not found him, right? He got all the way from Beersheba to Haran, 500 miles. Esau never caught up with him. Well, we found out Esau wasn't even chasing him. He was off getting a third wife. (laughs) But anyway, Esau didn't catch him and kill him. Uh, God himself had appeared to him in a marvelous dream. And God had even guided him right to Haran, you know, right there without even a compass. And with no major mishaps along the way, or we would have heard about them. And then when Jacob got near to Haran, he had met some shepherds, and that was not a coincidence, was it? Because there are no coincidences in uh, God's sovereign world. But anyway, he met some shepherds at a well who not only confirmed to him that that he had gotten near to where his final destination was, he had gotten near to Haran, but they, um, they knew Laban. And what did they report about Laban? What was his condition? Well, he was well, which not only meant physically, but he was at peace. Everything was going fine in his life. Uh, And not only that, but then they said that Rachel, at that very moment when they were talking to him, that Rachel, Laban's daughter, who was a shepherdess, was moving toward them. And uh, up to this point also, Rachel... Laban's youngest daughter, she really has had little impact on the story so far, right? I mean, all we have learned about her is that she was Laban's daughter and she kept his sheep. I know you all know other things about her because you know you've gone ahead of the story, but that's all up to chapter or to verse 14 of chapter 29 that we really know about Rachel. We weren't even given a description of her. I mean, we find out she was beautiful, but there was no mention of that at the well scene. And when she ran home and fetched her father, he very warmly received Jacob, and then he invited him into his home. So everything to this point looked like it might end how? How do all the little fairy story tales have happily ever after? What are they called? Not fairy tales. 
all the little stories, happily ever after. Anyway, it, so it might look like, oh, it's going to end happily ever after, but the story isn't complete, is it? Actually, in many ways, it was just the beginning because it was time for the real reaping to begin. Now, I hope you didn't write that down because that was last week's lesson. And this week's lesson I'll have up here. One more transparency. Well, actually, it's time for it now. So look at that real quick. There they are meeting. <laughs> All right, here's this week's lesson. This is our lesson this week. The reaping begins. And we're going to look at verses 15 to 22. Um, two divisions. We'll look first of all at the nuptial pact or the wedding pact, and uh, that will be in verses 15 to 20. And then we're going to look at verses 21 and 22, the nuptial party, which was actually you know the wedding, the feast. I, I wanted to actually finish this whole subject and also talk about the nuptial plot, you know, where Laban switched wives on Jacob. But we're simply not going to have time to do that because there's just too much in these two divisions. So we'll have to save that for next time, all right? So we'll begin with the nuptial pact. And in these verses, Laban and Jacob had a very serious discussion after Jacob had been a guest. Look at the end of verse 14 there. He had been a guest in Laban's home for how long? One month. And in that discussion that these two men had, uh, which turned out to be a marriage agreement, a nuptial pact, we are going to see that they covered three main uh, subdivisions or three main topics. They covered or they talked about the wages of the pact, the woman of the pact, and the work of the pact. We'll begin by looking at the wages of the pact, verse 15, okay? Chapter 29, verse 15. It says, And Laban said unto Jacob, Because thou art my brother, shouldest thou therefore serve me for naught? Tell me, what shall thy wages be? Here we learn from Laban's question to Jacob that during Jacob's one-month stay in his home, he had not been loafing around taking it easy. He had obviously, Jacob had obviously busied himself wherever he saw a need. Perhaps, Jacob, I got to thinking about what he might have done, maybe he helped in the kitchen from time to time and shared his great recipe for what? <laughs> Red lentil stew. Or maybe he taught the cooks in Laban's house his mother's trick for making goat meat taste like savory venison. <laughs> Perhaps he made sure that he was on hand every day when it was time for Rachel to water her flock so that he could remove that heavy wellstone and help her to water the sheep in her care. He may have used his talent for bargaining to close some very lucrative deals for Laban at the cattle marketplace. After all, he was very good at a bargain, wasn't he? Um, apparently, however, he was most helpful to his uncle um, as a shepherd. Whatever Jacob did to assist Laban during that first month's stay, and most of it did have to do with shepherding, uh, he did it well. He was a good, hard worker. Laban's wage proposal for Jacob's continued service was actually a compliment, wasn't it? 
it was a compliment in one way to Jacob. It wasn't in another way, but in one way it was a compliment because Laban was obviously impressed with Jacob's work habits and, and his work ethics, his abilities as well. And he wanted to keep him around. But how did he want to keep him around? As an employee with wages, you know, as a servant with wages. Now, although at first look, you know, it, it might appear that this wage proposal appears noble and friendly enough, yet the very mention of two words should give us a clue of something <laughs> that, that maybe Jacob's time of reaping is about to begin. What are those two words? Serve or work and wages. Those two words give us a real clue that the, the time of reaping is about to begin. Laban here is casting out the bait. And he is going to catch himself a very big fish. Because he's going to get for himself the next 20 years of Jacob's hard and dedicated service. And 14 of those years he is going to get at no pay. Now, if we remember back to the Lord's words to Rebecca when she was pregnant with her struggling twin boys. Now, Rebecca, you know, is Jacob's mother. Remember the uh, message that God gave to her in Genesis 25:23. He told her that her elder son was going to serve her younger son. In other words, Esau would serve Jacob. Jacob, the younger son, was actually born with his hand on his brother's heel, illustrating, you know, his future desire to take, in his own way and in his own time, to take that position of honor and dignity where he was the served rather than the serving, you know, where he would be treated like the elder brother instead of the younger brother. And as we know, he had schemed on several occasions so that uh, he would gain from his elder brother that position of honor and dignity, being the served rather than the servee. <laughs> so it's very insightful from the, you know, the reaping and sowing perspective of things to find that Laban's first words to his nephew Jacob, you know, after acknowledging that he was indeed his, his uh, sister's son, his actual first words, recorded words are in verse 14 where he said, you know, you are surely my bone and my flesh. But other than that, his very first recorded words to Jacob had to do with Jacob being put in the role of what? A servant. Very interesting. Was it merely coincidence? Do you think that Jacob fell into the hands of a man who was his match when it came to crafty scheming? Was that a coincidence? No. There are, as I said earlier, there are no dinks. <laughs> My daughters call coincidences dinks. I don't know where they got that. But anyway, there are no coincidences when it comes to God working with his uh, people. Well, not only his people, there are no coincidences, period. Right? He's sovereign. Everything happens as he has orchestrated it. Anyway, it was not a coincidence. It was really part of God's spiritual education process of Jacob. Jacob was going to reap what he himself had sown, and he was going to learn a great many lessons about himself in the process. Laban had been glad to have Jacob in his home as a guest for one month, but that was as far as his hospitality would go. 
Jacob was not, I mean, Laban is not known as a generous man. So this is as far as his generosity stretches as one month. Jacob was his brother. Notice it says, thou art my brother. That really means relative. You are my relative. Was Jacob really his brother? No. Who was he? As far as relationships, he was his nephew, his sister's son. But here he's talking about you are my relative. Um, But he was not his son, right? He might have been his nephew, but he wasn't his son. So Laban was in essence telling Jacob that unlike his own sons, and he did have sons, Laban did. But unlike them, Jacob could not expect to stay in Laban's home and indefinitely, you know, stay there without wages, um, and, and work for him. In other words, he couldn't stay there and work for him without wages in the expectation that he would one day inherit Laban's property. Sons, you see, did not receive wages because what? Why? There was the understanding that one day they would inherit their father's property. So Laban was telling Jacob that he was not close enough of a relative to stay on for free. But because he saw how good of a worker Jacob was, Laban offered him wages to stay. So anyway, no matter how you interpret his proposal here, in doing this, Laban was really reducing Jacob to the status of a servant. He was reducing him to the status of a hired laborer. From the divine perspective, Jacob was about to begin to receive the wages of his earlier behavior. He had been a master at deception, and he was about to get paid back in full. Now, the interruption in the narrative that we have in the next two verses, 16 and 17, uh, suggests to us that canny Uncle Laban had surely observed something else besides Jacob's great work habits and ethics during his one-month stay in his home. He had very likely also observed that Jacob was falling head over heels in love with who? His younger daughter, Rachel. The sudden explanation about Laban's two daughters. I mean, here we had a question asked, and then there's this interruption, and we learn about Laban's two daughters, uh, Rachel and Leah. This interruption hints... To us, It's kind of a clue to us that Laban's question to Jacob, tell me what shall thy wages be, was asked in rather sure confidence that he might not, to have, might not have to monetarily pay Jacob anything at all. He was probably anticipating some free labor for the hand of his daughter in marriage. After all, you know, Laban knew that Jacob had no bride price. He had come to him virtually penniless, you know. And he also knew that Jacob had been sent to him by his parents in order to do what? Find himself a bride, to find himself a wife. Furthermore, Laban knew that Jacob really had no other place to go. So he probably felt very confident that he was going to get the better end of his wages bargain. Now, Jacob was a bargainer, but guess who else was a bargainer and even a better bargainer (laughs) than Jacob? And that's Laban. So let's look at now the woman of the pact, verses 16 to 19. And Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah, 
and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah was tender-eyed, but Rachel was beautiful and well-favored. And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel thy younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to thee than that I should give her to another man. Abide with me. Well, here's the, where we are on the outline, the woman of the pack. Uh, as mentioned, J- Jacob's response to Laban's question is delayed a little bit by those two verses, 16 and 17, so that we might receive some information about Laban's two daughters, which we have not previously been told. Now, Laban was obviously married, or he couldn't have daughters, right, or sons. But who never appears in the text at all? Mrs. Laban. We never hear one word about Mrs. Laban at all. We have no idea. Poor woman. (laughs) We have no idea who she was or why she's not mentioned, but she isn't. Later, as I also said earlier, we do learn that Laban had some sons, but we don't find out too much about them either, except they kind of seem to take after their father, and they were shepherds. But the focus in Laban's family is on who? His, his two daughters, Rachel and Leah. And why do you think this is? Well, it's because they would become Jacob's wives, and they would therefore become the mothers of the forthcoming nation of Israel. All very important in God's overall redemptive plan. Now, Laban's elder daughter was named Leah. Now, you're just going to love this when you learn this. Maybe some of you already know this, but Leah means cow, C-O-W. His younger daughter was named Rachel. Her name means you and not Y-O-U, E-W-E. You see, apparently Laban was really into his herds and cattle. (laughs) Can you imagine naming your daughters cow and you? Anyway, that's what he did. Now, apart from their names and the fact that Leah was the elder and Rachel was the younger, they were not twins, I don't think, but uh, she was, Rachel was the younger. The only other information that we learn about these two girls is, uh, or at least at this point in time, is a very brief physical description of each of them. Now, Leah, whose name means, everybody, cow is described simply as being tender-eyed. Now, Terry, if you have ever looked into the eyes of a cow, you have looked into some what? Very big, tender eyes. Cows have beautiful eyes. They do, don't they, Terry? Yes, they do. Now, perhaps then, when Leah was born, her eyes reminded her parents of the eyes of a cow. This is all I could think of. Why would they name her cow? Maybe she had the eyes of a cow, and that's how she got her name. Now, the Hebrew word which describes her eyes in verse 17 as tender-eyed can also mean soft. So, in other words, it could also mean that she was soft-eyed. And that's another good description of cow's eyes. Now, some commentators suggest, for example, Dr. Henry Morris, 
um, suggests that this may be a figurative way of saying that Leah was a woman of compassion. She had tender eyes. She had soft eyes. She was sensitive. She looked upon others with tender, soft eyes. Yet I found that most of the Bible commentators, and remember, every Bible commentator that I have is a man, okay? <laughs> I have nothing against men, but they do see things differently than we do. Every, almost every other one of them came up with ideas which more or less indicated that she was homely. I mean, they had all kinds of words for her. Ugly, homely, you know. Some said that uh, she may have been cross-eyed. Some say that she was nearsighted. Some say that she was sparsighted. Some say that this means she squinted. Others say that her eyes were a light blue instead of, you know, the dark and lustrous brown, which men of that culture preferred. Quite a number of the commentators think that it merely means, and this is interesting, that it merely means that she did not have a certain sparkle in her eyes, you know, a certain gleam in her eyes. I, I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's so appealing to the opposite sex. She didn't have that little twinkle, you know. I'm not very good at twinkling. <laughs> but being a woman, I can't help it. My husband will get mad when he hears this tape, but sorry, Frank, I can't help it. <laughs> My immediate intuition on tender-eyed Leah, you know, I always want to go for the, the underdog, I guess I have that about me. Anyway, I feel that she was more modest in her ways than her sister. Rachel. I would say, you know, and we can't be dogmatic about this, but, it, and we'll find out one day, but this is fun because the Bible doesn't tell us all these things, so we have to just go with what we have. We know her name is Cal. We know she has tender eyes. All right. So I believe that um, she did not use her eyes to tell uh, Jacob how much she cared about him. I mean, maybe when her eyes met Jacob's eyes, instead of twinkling and having a little gleam, a flirtatious little gleam in them, I believe that maybe she just quickly looked down, you know. Uh, Leah, to me, I think, and, and I have looked ahead, so I'm going to be supporting this more and more as we get into the story. But Leah, I believe, was beautiful to the man who was looking for inner beauty of the soul inner beauty of the heart i believe um that rachel was definitely you know the more attractive outwardly she had beauty outwardly she is described as being beautiful she it says there she is both beautiful and well favored which means that she was beautiful in form and figure and she was beautiful in appearance in her face she was probably adorable when she was born and maybe her parents named her you you know thinking of an adorable you lamb i don't know but anyway she probably knew how to use her eyes to gain jacob's attention i believe that maybe she knew how to you know flirt with him with her eyes because they couldn't in that culture they couldn't flirt 
any other way, but they, I think she knew how to flirt with him, give that little twinkle or whatever. But whatever the situation might have been, when it came to the appeal of outward beauty, Next to her younger sister, Leah didn't stand a chance. If you were, you know, if you were a man and you were just looking for the outward physical beauty, she didn't stand a chance next to her younger sister, Rachel. Now, before continuing, I want to interject another one of my own thoughts. This is just, again, my own thought here, my own opinion. But uh, since you already know, I'm sure, that Laban did substitute Leah for Rachel on Jacob's wedding night and that Jacob did not know about it until when the the morning daylight this must mean if you think about this now you're women and you just think about this this has to mean that her stature Leah's stature and her figure could not have been that much different than Rachel's even though her face you know during the wedding ceremony her face would have been very heavily veiled because that was the custom Still, Jacob would have known of the deception um, immediately if there had been a noticeable difference in the size or the figure of the two sisters. You see, this is men. This is what men do to poor Leah. I just, I just kind of, I hate it because I don't have that. But you will, you will, um, you'll hear people that come up with the idea that uh, that Leah was either really heavy or that she was really skinny or some such thing. And that just does not work with what we're told in the scripture. I mean, you know, she had a veil, yes, but that isn't going to disguise her shape if she was really different from Rachel. And then in the marriage bed, I mean, he would have known if there was some big difference there, okay? <laughs> Without getting into more detail. <laughs> so I believe that, you know... Even in the long robes they wore, I'm sure there were ways you could wear them to, you know, accentuate your figure. And I believe that Leah didn't do that. I, I just believe that she was more modest in her ways and more soft-eyed than her younger sister, Rachel. Uh, you know, you can take that or leave that. But um, I, I do believe Leah was the more spiritual of the two sisters, and we'll get into that. All right, at any rate, whatever the difference in their physical characteristics might have been, Rachel was outwardly the noticeable beauty and Jacob only had eyes for her. Rachel, more than Leah, must have reminded him of probably his mother. You know, and men are usually drawn to, not always, but a lot of times they are drawn to girls who are a lot like their mother, their own mother. And Rachel was a lot like Rebecca. So act, acting totally out of character, this is so weird for Jacob because I mean, you know, he always has to get the best terms on any bargain he makes. So he's acting really out of character here when he offers Laban very generous terms. His vision was so full of Rachel's beauty that when Laban opened up the matter of wages, his only reaction was, Rachel. I mean, that's all he could think, the poor man. Well, after all, he was 77 years old. <laughs> And he hadn't had a girl yet, so, you know, he, was, <laughs> he wasn't that desperate, though, because he was w willing to wait seven more years. Hmm. You figure. Anyway, he volunteered to take care of Laban's sheep 
for a total of seven years if Laban would give his little ewe lamb to him in marriage. Now, Laban, who had, you know, obviously recognized after just one month of watching Jacob work, that there would be great advantage to having him around, good hard worker, he must have also realized that Jacob was the best prospect for a marriage, you know, for a son-in-law as well. He knew how wealthy Isaac was and and he knew that even though Jacob was poor at the time one day he was going to inherit all that Isaac had um, but for now he also knew Laban also knew that he had Jacob over a barrel because he had no bride price and yet he was obviously very in love with Rachel so Laban was very wise and crafty in letting Jacob, you know, name his own terms of their work pact or their nuptial pact because he f- figured very correctly that love sick, you know, love sick Jacob <laughs> would give him very generous terms and he would get a better bargain that way and he did. 7 years of free work from a strong and exceptional worker was truly a remarkable deal for Laban. Now just how generous was the marriage price that Jacob offered indirectly? I mean, you know, he wasn't really going to give him money, but his wages would amount to this uh, bride price. Well, in the book of Deuteronomy, which of course wasn't written yet at this time, but in the book of De- Deuteronomy there is a top limit that is put on the bride price. You know, in other words, like be a guy buying a diamond. In other words, he couldn't, let's say he couldn't buy a diamond that was cost more than $2,000. They put a limit on it. Well, the limit for the bride price, God did this, by the way. The book of Deuteronomy is written by God. The, this, it was set at 50 shekels. So in other words, a man was, you know, the limit was you could not give more than 50 shekels for the bride price. Or the the father of the bride couldn't ask for more than that. Well, laborers back in those days generally made about one shekel a month. And this meant since Jacob was offering seven years, you have to figure seven times 12 months and you get, a, he was offering a price of 84 shekels. I mean, that went above and beyond the 50 shekel. Of course, that limit wasn't set yet because Moses hadn't written Deuteronomy. But anyway, that was a big, that was a very big bride price. But money was not the big issue here, was it? Time was the big factor here. Seven years of free labor was a tremendous bride price. You know, it's just amazing to me that he that he did that. At 77 years of age, he was willing to wait another seven years before he took a wife. Now, some have suggested that he offered those seven years so that she would reach a more mature age, that she was perhaps very young, although it did say she was well put together. So, uh, you know, that means she had to be, what, she had to be at at least of... um, childbearing age (laughs) but anyway that's a suggestion that he waited until she was a little older but um, I can't help but wonder there was a lot of things I wondered about but I can't help but wonder why Jacob wouldn't have chosen to turn around and go back to Beersheba where his father and mother were to get the bride money from his parents I mean after all they were the ones who sent him out to get a bride and he had found one 
who, who would have met all their criteria. So surely if he had turned around and gone back and told them, I met the perfect girl, give me the bride price, do you not think that they would have done it? They would have given him some wonderful and expensive gifts, just like Abraham had given to Eliezer. And I'm sure they would have loaded up camels and given him med servants, and he could have gone back. Now, even if he did that, you say, well, that's a long trip. Okay, three weeks. Okay, if he went back three weeks and then turned around, maybe he'd stay with his parents a little while, let's say, and then turned around and came back three weeks at the most, we're talking, let's double, well, it would be six weeks if he did it right away, but let's double that. It would be 12 weeks. 12 weeks compared to seven years? I mean, even if he stayed with his folks a year, it's still, so I couldn't wonder, I thought, why didn't he do that? Instead of saying, well, I'll just give you, that's exactly what I think. I think that he did not do that because he was still so fearful of Esau. And uh, does this show he was trusting God's word? What had God already told him? He would be with him. He would watch over him. He would protect him. He was going to have descendants. They were going to inherit the land. He was going to, his seed would eventually lead to the Messiah. You can't have all those promises and be killed, you know? So he really wasn't trusting God here. Anyway, so Jacob made his proposal to serve Laban seven years for Rachel. And Laban, of course, readily agreed to that arrangement. He was not only getting a good hard worker for seven years of free labor, but he was getting a good son-in-law in the process. You know, it was always much preferred among the ancient people to have one's child, one's daughter or son, marry within their relatives, rather than to marry someone from another tribe. You know, this because this would usually mean a more uh, trustworthy and friendly marital situation for all concerned. Now, Laban was not a true believer. You might as well know that up front. He knew of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he even used his name. He was like a professing believer, but he was not a true believer at all. And so it probably was not a big factor for him that his daughter marry a believer. Although it should have been, right? He should have wanted Rachel to marry a believer. I mean, he picked a believer, which is good, but that wouldn't have been a factor for him. But in light of the uh, rest of the story, we do notice that Laban, um, look at verse 19. He was very guarded in his contract language. He said, what, that it was better for him to give her in marriage to Jacob than for him to give her to another man. But what did he not speak? Her name. Jacob had spoken her name when he made his end of the bargain. He said, Rachel, Rachel. But uh, Laban never used Rachel's name. He just used the word her. Uh, Now, it has been debated back and forth whether or not Laban, even at this point, had something up his sleeve here. Was he purposely, um, you know, being vague in that, you know, he never stated Rachel's name? Being the conniving man that he was, he very well may have been purposely leaving his options open. In view of the fact that... uh, that Laban would later on tell Jacob 
this is down in verse 26, he would tell Jacob that the law of his land was that the younger could not be wed before the elder, before the firstborn. We can't help but wonder here why he would not have mentioned this to Jacob at the time that they made this marriage pact, this nuptial pact. It either wasn't true, was not true, that might have been a lie, um, but Jacob could have, you know, checked that out. It probably was a flexible kind of a rule. You know, they, they didn't like maybe the younger to be married before the firstborn, but it might have been flexible. Or else um, he was keeping his options open. He, he probably did not plan. My, my guess would be that he probably did not plan at this point in time to give Leah to Jacob instead of Rachel because there just were too many things that could have changed during those seven years. Leah could have died. Jacob could have died. Um, uh, Laban could have died. Laban was really up there in age. Who knows? I mean, somebody could have come along and asked Leah for her hand in marriage. So things could have changed during seven years. But at the least, he was being a sly fox here by purposely using vague language with Jacob. Nonetheless, Jacob thought he had a sure bargain with uh, Laban. And I thought it was interesting how much he trusted Laban in this little pact that they made, this little um, vow that they made to each other. He trusted Laban's word really more than he had trusted God's word. And that is always a serious, grave mistake. When you trust a man's word, over God's word, especially an unsaved man's word, over God's word, you are in for a rude awakening. But anyway, let's look now at the, got to move faster than this, the work of the pact, and that's in verse 20. And Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed unto him but a few days for the love he had to her. Now, You might tend to feel a little bit sorry for Jacob as you think about this rich son of the patriarch who had never had to work for anybody, who had never had to serve others, but who had many who would have been willing to serve him because his father was very, very wealthy, had all kinds of servants. And he was even the son who had learned from God himself that uh, his elder brother would serve him. And yet here he is now serving as a common shepherd for one of the most deceitful men that we read about in all of the scripture, Laban. And shepherding was very difficult work. Later, Jacob himself would give a description of his job working for Laban. And this is what he said. He said, in the day the drought consumed me and the frost by night and my sleep departed from mine eyes. That's in chapter 31, verse 40. Shepherding was not an easy uh, job. However, the wonder of it all is that Jacob still did not fully realize that the the divine reaping principle had begun to take effect in his life. And soon the chickens were going to come home to roost. He still didn't realize this because he was so starry-eyed in love with Rachel, that it says those seven years of service to Laban seemed as what? A few days. Now that little phrase, a few days, does that take your mind back to anybody else? If you look back at chapter 27, verse 44, it might cause us to remember 
uh, Rebecca's words, his mother's words, when she had instructed him to tarry with Laban, how long? A few days. Jacob had already been gone from Rebecca about two months before he even began his seven years of service of labor for Laban. Labor for Laban. Now that would have been a good title. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> but, you know, because it took him about three weeks to get up there, and then he's, he was a guest for a month, so he, he was gone uh, two months before he even started the seven years. So we might ask, is Rebecca back down there in Beersheba also learning about the divine law of retribution, the sowing and reaping law? Was she not reaping in effect from her own sowing? You know, although those seven years seemed like a few days to Jacob because of his great love for Rachel, those same seven years must have seemed like eternity to Rebecca because of her great love for her son. Yet if seven years were long for her, 14 years and then 20 years proved to be too long because what happened? somewhere in those waiting years to see her son again she died she never did see her son Jacob again in this life her so her deceit toward her husband and toward her other son had cost her the price of never again seeing her beloved Jacob her dishonest brother was both her match now remember Laban was Rebecca's brother so he was not only her match and her means of discipline, you know, as well as being Jacob's match and means of discipline. But he was likewise, um, for both of them, their own mes- medicine, their medicine of duplicity. Okay, let's look at the last two verses, the nuptial party. And under this section, we're going to look at the fulfillment of Jacob's seven years of service for Laban. And then we're going to quickly look at the feast that was held. We won't get to the, um, the nuptial plot, but uh, you'll have to come back in two weeks <laughs> to hear that. Well, anyway, verse 21, the fulfillment. And Jacob said unto Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go in unto her. You know, in the first scene that we just got finished looking at, the scene that covered verses 15 to 20, it was Laban who opened up the discussion with Jacob as he made a proposal for service and for wages. And now, in this second scene, which is seven years later, we find that it's Jacob who opened up the discussion. And it really wasn't too polite. You know, seven years of living and working for Laban had apparently taught Jacob something about this man's character. His seven years of service had come to completion for some time. Now, we don't know how long, you know, he had finished those seven years, but there had been some time in between, and he's waiting for Laban to say something, and Laban doesn't say a word. So, uh, Jacob... Jacob, who had fulfilled his end of the bargain, was a little bit upset with Laban, who was obviously in no hurry to fulfill his end of the bargain. I think that if Laban had had his way, what would he have done? He would have just kept Jacob working for him forever without pay. I don't think he would have ever 
gone to him and said, oh, it's time to take Rachel. Because he knew that once Jacob married Rachel, what would happen? He would not only lose the best worker he had ever had, but he would lose his beautiful daughter, Rachel, who I don't think he was too fatherly about that. That wasn't a big problem, but he would also lose her as a worker. And she had been a shepherdess. And so he wasn't too eager to uh, approach Jacob after he fulfilled his time with him and to mention wedding plans. So this is why we read of Jacob taking the initiative here in this situation and why we don't hear any politeness in his tone. His patience, Jacob's patience had worn out and he went to Laban and he made a demand. Because that's really a demand, isn't it? Give me my wife. For my days are fulfilled that I may go in unto her. Jacob was tired now of being patient. I mean, those seven years had flown by as though a few days, but he didn't want to wait any longer before he would take his beloved Rachel in his arms and make her his wife. Little did Jacob yet know that the reaping of his earlier sowing was about to really, really begin. I mean, if he thought that his seven years of service to Laban had taught him about a lesson about his longing to have Esau serve him, and if he thought those seven years were a lesson in patience in not having waited on God, guess what? He hadn't seen anything yet, had he? Things are just really beginning the reaping is just beginning he's going to uh, he's about to learn that the way of the transgressor is hard now there's no recorded response you notice from Laban to Jacob's demand so what Laban was thinking at this point is a mystery we don't know but his silence does indicate of course that Jacob was right he had finished his seven years so Laban had nothing much to say about that because it was true but his silence also indicates his reluctance to prepare for the wedding and the uh, accompanying feast I mean it would cost a lot of money and so and he was a greedy man so he wasn't too eager to do all this but he did and that's what we read about in verse 22 however before we discuss the nuptial party or the feast i sh- i do need to mention the fact that somewhere in the time before the wedding feast laban had come up with his plan he had devised a plan to switch brides on jacob And probably when Jacob said, give me my wife, that didn't, I mean, that really set it in cement. He says, okay, I'm going to give you (laughs) a wife. So this was a a very, this was a very clever, but also a very cruel deception by which Laban figured that he could really kill two birds with one stone. First of all, first bird. (laughs) If things went according to his plans, Laban could extract another seven years of free labor from Jacob to get, you know, the wife that he really wanted. Secondly, he could marry off Leah, who apparently nobody else was, you know, asking for her hand in marriage. So Laban was a shrewd man, and he probably uh, had noticed how much his tender-eyed, cow-eyed oldest daughter was secretly fond of Jacob. Perhaps, now here I'm really giving him the benefit of the doubt, but perhaps in his what little father's heart he may have had, he might have rationalized 
his wedding night deception by convincing himself that such an arrangement would be the best for both of his daughters. Leah would not be left out. She and Rachel, you know, and this was a custom, so don't think in terms of our, I know it wasn't God's will for two wives ever, but this was a custom back in those days, as we've already learned, that they would have multiple wives. So he, he would think, well, this, he'd rationalize to himself and say Leah would not be left out, and both of his daughters would have for themselves a strong, hard-working husband, the son of his own sister. I mean, a good marriage um, situation. And knowing of Jacob's honorable character, which I'm sure he had observed during those seven years of his labor, um, and the way he worked with his relationship with other people, and probably noticing the way he did treat his daughters, Laban was gambling on the hope that Jacob would not dishonor Leah by throwing her out after he had taken her virginity. Yet knowing Jacob's deep love for Rachel, he was also gambling on the hope that Jacob would work yet another seven years to take her also as his wife. Now, as far as the daughters are concerned, Leah and Rachel, and their own part in the deception, I'm going to get more into detail about that you know, next time. But at this point, I just want to interject the thought that they may not have been given any choice in this matter. You know, some have speculated all kinds of things that they had to um, put Rachel in a in a little box and lock the door so she couldn't get out. And you know, they have made Leah so wicked and evil. And how could she do this to her sister? On and on it goes. But. I mean, we have been hearing a lot about the plight of women in the Middle East, haven't we, lately? You take that same situation and you go back 4,000 years, and you might have a little bit of, you know, an idea of the picture here. Laban was a man who ruled his home with absolute authority, and he was even more of a despot than uh, than some of the fathers back in those days. I mean, this was, a, this was a man who intimidated people. Even Remember, even in the situation with his own sister, he uh, had more household authority than would normally go to a brother. He kind of took over things, even um, from his father, Bethuel, as far as giving away Rebekah. But at least with Rebecca, remember, she had been asked if she would go with Eliezer to marry his master's son. But we never, ever read of Laban asking either Rachel or Leah if they would consent in marriage to Jacob. We never even once read that, um, if you really want to get down to the nitty-gritty, we never even read that Rachel loved Jacob. We read that he loved her, but we never read that that love was reciprocated. It is interesting to find out, however, that after Leah's marriage, Leah's marriage to Jacob, we discover what? That she did love Jacob. And we're going to see that love very much evidenced in the names that she gave to her sons. But uh, we can speculate about their situation and how much part they had in that deception 
we'll talk about that more when we get into it. But um, we do, let me tell you this much, we do have some insight into the feelings of these two sisters with regard to this marriage scheme of their father. And this insight is given to us by way of their own words. Would you flip over to Genesis 31.15? 31.15. There they are discussing with Jacob, both sisters, Rachel and Leah, are discussing their father. They're talking about their father and the way he had treated them. And here's what they say. Are we not counted of him strangers? For he hath sold us and hath quite devoured also our money. What is this? These are their own words. What are they saying here? They are saying that um, they had long, because this is this is um, fourteen years up the road. They are saying that they had long resented the way in which their father Laban had sold them. They use the word "sold," had sold them uh, for gain to Jacob. Because in doing so, he had treated them not as daughters, but as strangers. You know, just almost like slaves. He sold them. So that doesn't sound like he gave them much choice in the matter, does it? None of the wages, also we find this out, none of the wages which Jacob essentially had earned during his 14 years of working for his wives, none of that money, which would have been 84 times 2, 168 shekels perhaps none of that went into their dowry accounts as it should have instead laban kept the would-be wages for himself what did they say he devoured them on himself so in effect he sold his daughters for the labor now with this kind of a cold-hearted calculating man as a father It's no wonder, probably, that neither daughter, neither girl resisted when he performed his wedding night scheme on Jacob. I believe that they were fearfully submissive and did whatever their cruel father told them to do. Now, of course, you're you're free to disagree with me on that. Okay, let's look at verse 22, the feast, and we'll close with this. Back to chapter 29, verse 22. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. All right, here he invited all of his neighbors and his relatives to a feast to celebrate the marriage of his uh, nephew with his daughter. Now, a wedding in those days involved processions to and from the bride's home. It involved a reading of the marriage contract and then a large meal, which was attended by family and friends. And the first day's festivities ended uh, with the bridegroom then wrapping his cloak around his bride, who during the whole day was heavily veiled, you know, through the whole ceremony and everything. And then wrapping that cloak around her, he would take her into the nuptial chamber. Remember we studied about this? It's called the chuppah. Hoopa. <laughs> they would go into the hoopah, and that was where the uh, marriage was consummated. Wouldn't that be embarrassing? All the guests are outside, but anyway, that's the way they did it. (laughs) 
And the guests remain there, and they feed. You know, if we think that weddings cost a lot in our day, can you imagine that the wedding feast would last for seven days? And all those family and friends who just stay there and eat and drink and carry on for a whole week. That was the custom. However, it was not the custom to switch brides on the groom. It was not the custom to substitute one daughter for another daughter. It was not the custom to deceive by disguise and give the groom the elder daughter for the younger daughter. But guess what? Neither had it been the custom of those days for a younger son to substitute himself in disguise as the elder son. So Jacob was about to learn one of the hardest lessons of his life. You know what that lesson is? A man reaps what he sows, and so does a woman. Now, remember, however, that as mean a trick as the bride swapping was on Laban's part, yet God was the one who was controlling the situation. He is the master at taking what men intend for evil and doing what? Using it for good. This is the principle we see over and over and over. It's a Genesis 50-20 principle. What man means for evil, God can take and turn to good for his own purposes. Not only was God teaching Jacob some very serious lessons that he needed to learn about submission and about patience, but God was chastening him about his sins of deception and disregard for his father and for his elder brother. Furthermore, God had an even bigger picture in mind. He was bringing forth a new nation, which would issue from Jacob's loins. And in addition to that, God was going to continue the line of the coming seed of the woman, the coming Savior. That line would continue through Jacob. And that line would continue through the wife God had apparently selected for Jacob and not the wife that Jacob had selected. You know who was the mother of Judah? Leah. 